0: You're listening to On The Ear, an audiology podcast sponsored by SpeechTherapyPD.com. I'm your host, Dr. Dakota Sharp, AUDCCCA, audiologist, clinical professor, and lifelong learner. While I primarily work with pediatric cochlear implants and hearing aids, I am absolutely intrigued by the many areas of audiology and communication in general. This podcast aims to explore the science of hearing, balance, and communication with a variety of experts in hopes of equipping you to better serve your patients, colleagues, and students. So let's go. We are live and on the ear, brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. So working on an interdisciplinary team can be a fantastic opportunity for clinicians and other professionals to better understand how their field can support and collaborate with others. Sometimes with disciplines you never thought you'd work with. I'm hoping Michelle's got some stories there. So even better, inter- interdisciplinary teams overwhelmingly lead to better outcomes for children with complex medical needs. The data continues to show this. And today's guest, she's so great. We're going to get we're going to get to her. Today's guest is going to help us better understand how audiologists and SLPs can contribute to these teams. And especially from an early intervention approach, she's got personal stories. She's got good insights. She's going to help us get She's going to help get us started on all things early intervention from an IPC perspective. So our guest tonight is uh, Miss Michelle Dawson, MS, CCCC, SLP, CLC. She's got all the credentials. She's the member manager of Heartwood Speech Therapy in Columbia, South Carolina. She's the acclaimed host of First Bite, Fed, Fun, and Functional, a speech therapy podcast slash pod course that talks about all things pediatric speech therapy. She's also the clinical coordinator at Francis Marion University and the author of the upcoming book, Chasing the Swallow, Truth, Science, and Hope for Pediatric Feeding Disorders. Hopefully we'll get a little sneak peek of as to what's going on there tonight. Um, she's an accomplished lecturer. She's traveled the nation delivering ASHA-approved CEU courses on best practices, evaluation and treatment of the medically complex infant, toddler, and child with respect to pediatric oropharyngeal dysphagia. I also want to get some clarification on if it's dysphagia or dysphagia, I hear competing opinions, as well as language acquisition within the framework of early intervention. She has served as the treasurer of the Council of State Association Presidents. She's a past president of the South Carolina Speech, Language, and Hearing Association. She's the 2020 recipient of the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Awareness Champion from Feeding Matters. She's a 2017 graduate of the ASHA Leadership Development Program and a five-time recipient of the ASHA ACE Award. Michelle, she's kind, she's hilarious, she's motivating, she's a great friend, and I'm so happy she's able to join me tonight. Hey, Michelle, how about that for an intro?
1: Um, if that doesn't highlight my ADD, ADHD stuff, <laughs> then I don't really know
0: what to do. Hey, you've done uh, a lot. You've done a lot in such yes. a, you know, such a short amount of time. It's really amazing
1: that's uh i i have to credit um a phenomenal husband um the good lord for thinking i'm a worthy conduit and um my family when i was a kid they always told me uh, well i'll give you the g-rated version my dad he would say if you recognize a problem don't just fuss about it with your next breath what are you going to do to resolve it and so my whole life if you identify the problem you then have to engage in interprofessional practice or engage with colleagues to fix it because otherwise all you're doing is um, the G-rated version being fussy. Yeah. But, you know, <laughs> case <wrong.
0: laughs> I think, Yeah, I think we all know how to fill in that blank. So anyone with a, yeah, a dad or yeah. a grandpa can fill in that blank. But yeah, I'm so yes. excited to talk about this with you. Um, one other quick little shout out. We're both JMU Duke dogs. The second, the second Duke I've had on the podcast so far. So, you know, making ripples for Harrisonburg.
1: I heard your first one. It was Doctor Faust. Mm-hmm. Faust. Yeah. Yes, that was oh my gosh. She is amazing. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah, that was that was a really good episode. When she was talking about um, conditioner being in the girl's hearing aid, I was like, Oh, I would not have thought of that.
0: Yes. Yeah. yeah. She's got so many things like that that are just like, oh my it's just eye opening yes. and you know, clinically like they challenge you too to really think about how you're, you know, giving services. So it was, it was awesome. I highly recommend people to go back and check that. Thanks for that shout out. I'll let her know you said hi. Um, <laughs> yes,
1: because I think she's awesome. I was like, Ooh, <laughs> yeah. Okay. I'll stop fan girly. <laughs>
0: awesome. No, it's, it's all good. So, so why don't we kind of start with, so let's kind of like hone in our topic a little bit here. So we're talking about IPC. We're clearly talking about working on a team. And I think what's really interesting is that you have a, I mean, you're an SLP. So clearly your scope of practice is a lot of things and a lot of pediatric disorders involve the SLP for many aspects, whether it's speech Mm -hmm. and language, whether it's swallowing, like that's a pretty wide range of things that can be affected. So from your perspective of pediatric feeding and swallowing as your primary expertise, what kind of early intervention teams have you been on? Like, what does that look like in terms of makeup or the kind of patients that you're seeing, like what is what does that team mean to you? Yes.
1: Okay. So that is um different hats for different patients. Okay. Okay. So um I think the best way to work through this is if we were to go through a couple of different case examples. Sure. Would that be that would be Yeah that's great. Perfect. Okay. So in the world of early intervention, SLPs tend to one, be frowned upon, and two, get very limited access to medical information. So true early intervention is for birth to three. However, the concept of routines-based early intervention where we're going in and we're doing activities based on the family's daily routines, which is at the core of what we should be doing within early intervention, uh, that's, that can carry up through early elementary school, all right? on the grounds that um, a child, if they have an artic phonology delay um, or impairment, especially as in like my own Theodore, Bear had a um, significant language delay. He still has some uh, regular past tense verb issues. That's all secondary to his hearing loss because he didn't hear until he was two and changed. So the routine for him is language, speech, sound acquisition, as it correlates to uh, emergent reading, right? Um, emergent literacy, emergent reading. Can you tell I'm the swallowing person, not the literacy person? But uh, (laughs) that that team looks very different, but the concept for routine space is the same. It's still literacy for a kindergartner is part of their daily routine. The SLP can collaborate for speech sound correspondence versus the routine for a two-year-old is initial word acquisition, right? And Wanting their favorite cookie, or they want a different cup, or they want um, to go outside and play, right? Within the framework of RBI, when we're doing normal routines, um, there's some great resources out there. Uh, I would highly recommend Anything You Can by Dr. Juliana Woods. She is a uh, clinical researcher out of, oh, I can't remember which university in Florida. She's brilliant. The woman's brilliant. She's putting forth some of the most profound I mean it is it is fundamentally shaping the world of early intervention and you can find some of her resources available if you google the Florida um, early intervention system it pops right up and even has videos examples of what an SLP does right there okay so Give credit where it's due. Also, I love Carrie Ebert. She is amazing. She's a speech pathologist that focuses on early intervention, routine space. She's also a breast cancer survivor and a mommy of a 17-year-old with autism. And so she shares her experiences as a parent of a child with special needs, as well as she's an apraxia expert, as well as uh, how this looks, look, how, what it felt like her whole life. Right. So kind of some big picture framework for RBI, which will hone in on the IPP team. OK. When a child gets referred for early intervention, each state has certain disorders or diseases that are considered automatic qualifiers. OK. Uh, a genetic condition such as Down syndrome. Um, I have a little one that has um, Wolf hirschhorn Rubenstein, taybi Those genetic conditions are Automatic qualifiers for RBA, or for early intervention. And then you have the, they qualify, but you have to advocate a little more. They have to have a deficit to a certain level. And and that can be a little tricky. Now, hearing loss is actually an automatic qualifier. However, Bears audiologists did not know that hearing loss was an automatic qualifier for early intervention. And... At the time, I was not thinking as an SLP, and we went six months without services before um, one of your colleagues mentioned to me, Michelle, how come you haven't gotten him in?" Yeah, I was like, what? Duh! Statement of obvious! But, I mean, I was going through multiple surgeries with him to get him to the point that he could hear and in that zone. So, I, poor Bear, I always use him as a guinea pig. Wait till I tell you about the time. He had an inguinal hernia. His right ball just exploded and he had to have testicle surgery. And like, when he's older and he hears this, he's going to be mortified. But like, I hate that child. He's the reason I have gray hair. All right, everybody, I hope you're laughing. That was that I, I share my children's embarrassing story to keep you engaged. Um, True, but embarrassing. Hmm okay so
0: i also just want to point out the lovely like we love you mom picture right behind you (laughs) like they just outpour their love to you meanwhile you're like guess what happened
1: (laughs) i asked i asked a pediatrician who's a friend of mine i was like so it's only his right testicle it's like four sizes bigger than the other one and she goes you have to take him into the hospital i was like okay (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like, oh, oh our Hey, that's children. good to
0: know for me just in case yeah. for my little guy. I I, mean, it's it. more, you know, the more you know. the public more you service. Yeah,
1: announcement. Okay, so squirrel, back to focus here. Our little guy, I didn't know what I didn't know, even as a clinician because I, I missed those moments for the IPPT, right? Once we got in, and I'll continue with Bear as the example, What I found was that the records and the documentation of what the deficits were, what the etiology, what the secondary disorders, that didn't get carried over to the lead case manager within the early intervention framework. So within early intervention, your head of your team, the starting point, um, they're in different states called different things. Sometimes they're called the case manager. Sometimes they're called the service coordinator. And this is where it gets tricksy. What you and I, well, I'm a little older than you, but what you and I learned at JMU is vastly different than how early intervention practices in South Carolina, which if you talk to Carrie Ebert is vastly different than what it looks like in Missouri. However, that service coordinator is still supposed to have the records. After a lot of advocacy, and a lot of meetings here in our own state, it was presented to me that early intervention is a academic educational model. Therefore, the team does not need the medical records. We don't have to submit most recent medications. We don't have to submit a recent plan of care, hospital discharge summary. The team doesn't need that because it's academics. It's educational. I challenge this. I get very hot under the collar about this, I mean, well, heck, I'm just hot, period. Um, I need that inner information in order to drive my plan of care. If I find out that, for example, I have one little girl over the course of her treatment, she was referred to me for um, failure to thrive, had recently had a G2 place, was completely oral aversive, wanted nothing near her mouth and after a significant amount of pushing and i had to basically call the pediatrician and say all right what's the hold up like something drastically is is wrong we got the child to neurology at musc and we found out the little girl had less so her brain was smooth it did not have the sulci gyri like it should once we had that information don't you know her entire plan of care changed the frequent i mean like Why? So, one, early intervention across the country is broken because a lot of folks practice under the misinformation that medical records can't get over to the EI team. But we have to have that. So, in states where, in some facilities, such as um, uh, one of my girlfriends, Katie, lives in Kansas, Um, she gives the example that in Kansas, the... um, service coordinator is actually either an ot pt or an slp it's one of the allied health disciplines and then they go in and do the weekly training with the family and consult and have ot or pt come in as needed right that's that's one extreme i would love it if the interprofessional practice early intervention team had weekly sessions focused on coaching focused on the routine space with otpt speech and when it's appropriate they should have on there a highly skilled um, educator now in south carolina we don't that's not a requirement in south carolina you can be a service coordinator slash an early interventionist you could have a degree in recreational therapy or a degree in psych which is Good if that's what you want to pursue and they're going in and they're billing our state early intervention system um, a significant amount of money every session and they're unfortunately often more often than not engaging in the scope of practice encroachment and giving therapeutic recommendations that fall into the OTPT speech therapy world which is detrimental when I have a child that has a feeding tube because they have a um, unilateral cleft palate. Um, I'm I'm thinking of one little girl in particular, she had Pierre Robin sequence. So she had a massive um, U-shaped cleft and it was basically the whole palate was gone, right? She had a feeding tube, she had recurrent, she also had bilateral um, hearing loss, which falls in your world. I mean, the little girl had the whole nine yards and we were just doing limited, structured, safe PO trials. And come to find out, the early interventionist came in and was like, oh, well, if you just give them this cup, she'll drink. Well, then she had a major aspirating event because they gave her an open mouth cup instead of like a, like a specific paste cleft palate bottle. So while I talk about all these point assistive breakdowns, there's, there's room for improvement. And so anybody that's listening, if you're part of an interprofessional practice team, if you're part of the early intervention system, and you feel that you are witnessing scope of practice encroachment, or you feel that you need those medical records and you're not getting them, you can work to resolve that. One, join your state association, advocate. That's how, literally how we've changed our state is through that. And it takes volunteers. And two as a allied health member when we do a patient intake documentation um i have consent to speak and i just have a a blank open statement consent to um speak with all interprofessional practice members because it's too cumbersome to go through and line item out every single different specialist And if I just say I have permission to speak to all of them, then I have permission to speak to all of them. And as the team grows and builds, which is what you want, then you can just pick up the phone and say, hey, Susie Q did X, Y, and Z. Can we please get a referral here? Or, oof, I'm a little worried that I might have seen an absence seizure. Or, we got a lot of diarrhea. Can we work on this? Change the formula. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: But that document gives you legal permission to make those phone calls or send the emails or whatnot. That was a lot. I'm super passionate about this. I'm sorry, Dakota.
0: (laughs) Yeah, no, no, no. I think that's a great, that's a great jumping off point for a lot of the topics that I'm hoping we're going to talk about. So, um, and I do think, I think it's a, it's a great starting point for people who are listening in because honestly with my, it's such a different perspective from the audiology side in terms of early intervention. Mm -hmm. Um, Like I'm a part of the early intervention network I guess is what Mm -hmm. we would call it here the referral network but like I don't feel like I'm nearly as tuned in to what's going on compared to someone who's probably in like I can't do RBI as an audiologist right I can try to simulate it in the in the clinic but like audiology is very we don't see them every Mm -hmm. week or even more than once a week in that kind of context so I think hearing that perspective is really really interesting because I see breakdowns of my own and and it's there's kind of like Within early intervention of audiology, there's like kind of its own separate early intervention called EDI, which is early hearing yes. detection yes. and identification, which is technically related, but where we are not exactly the same thing. Um, and so you can see a lot of breakdowns there, too, but they aren't necessarily related to the EI that is in your world. And so I can just see how like this whole system and honestly, the the victims of this are the are the children and their families. Right. Who don't who aren't as informed. They don't understand what's going on. Um And so I do think you have a great point when you point to, like, the people in the case manager roles need to know about these disciplines. They need to understand them well, and they need to understand the professionals and what their roles are, and they need to understand their own role, which is not as one of those, you know, providers. And I think that's a great starting point to just say... And I love that you said, like, if you feel like you're seeing something like unethical, you know, breach of scope of practice, or if you feel like you're not having access to things that are going to improve care, the first step is advocating to get those things done because without that information, you're flying blind the entire time. So
1: you talked about the Eddie, the early detective. Okay. Mm -hmm. So I have, I've actually had this conversation within the last two weeks with an SLP. There was rural community hospital near where I work, right? and they do their newborn hearing screens they were making the referrals out assuming that the referrals were being picked up for when the child was failing the hearing screens but they were not the referrals were not getting picked up by the early intervention system the the data wasn't getting carried over so one of the first one of the first process improvement steps is after you make the referral Ensure that the referral has been received and that it's act like do it, it is a non billable activity. And I assume audiologists are under the gun for productivity, like SLPs are. <laughs> Folks, I don't know if you saw that, but Dakota just gave one heck of an eye roll. But yes, and yes, I exhaled. Yes, I exhaled. but um, I have to say, Goose does do a really ridiculously adorable eye roll because he can't quite muster it. So he just makes this face, and I'm like, Try to sit down. okay. <laughs> But that that simple pick-up-the-phone, a follow-through, is key. Okay, so you asked the question, what are some interprofessional practice teams and what do they look like, right?
0: Yeah, like what are some of the roles that you see? So we've already mentioned kind of OTPT, SLPs, obviously, for some of the reasons we've listed. What other disciplines have kind of like crept into the teams you've seen? Yes.
1: Okay, so in... In the home health setting, when we're going into the patients' homes, we see OTPT speech, as indicated. Um, uh, Teachers for the deaf and blind. That's been um, I, I um, South Carolina School for the deaf and the blind. They um, they have one or two. Um, Susan Anepo, Susan Anepo has bright red hair, a laugh that just warms your insides. And she is a highly skilled teacher for cortical vision impairments. She filled my cup. She was one of my first mentors when I moved to South Carolina. And I did not, well, I mean, you know when you graduate and you're like a year or two out into your profession and you're like, I know all the things. Let me tell you what, y'all, if you're listening and you're two or three years out, you don't know diddly I am like 15 years out and still think oh my god I don't know diddly and I have so much more to learn but Susan Anapo caught me at that moment in time and was like let me teach you the primary colors red blue yellow I was like yeah I know those are primary colors she goes ah honey listen to what I'm saying and I was like oh this is a come to Jesus moment I need to be quiet now she was like for a child that has a cortical vision impairment they're not always diagnosed at the time of discharge from the hospital it may not be known. Uh, and when they're first learning to see, there's a reason that there's a reason that our areolas are different than our breast tissue. This is where my CLC hat comes in, because your nipple is literally a bull'seye for the newborn. okay? That's why there's a color contrast there because the infants can see that. Now, the next colors that they acquire, black, white, red, Blue and yellow. Blue and yellow, I might have backwards. And she gave me a hint. I thought it was pretty smart, spot on. She goes, you ever wondered why Mickey Mouse is so popular? And I was like, wait, why? She was like, he hits all the right colors and has a high-pitched voice. The teacher of the vision impairment opened my eyes and I was like, that's why. That's why we have the clubhouse because every kid goes through that phase, right? Every mom knows those songs and is like,
0: we are currently we are currently in the m-i-c-k-e-y-m-o-u-s-e yes, but like, phase it's
1: brilliant because that that serves a purpose so teacher for the deaf and blind and yeah. um, for the vision impairments but i say this and i give those examples because unless you're trained to know what to look for for a child that's only tracking certain mm-hmm. colors that's avoiding other colors that if the visual background is too overwhelming and, and they get, um, they close their eyes, they turn their heads, they need to focus on something plain and simple. Those are all red flags that within the world of EI, that's why we engage in interprofessional education. I would not have known about the need for interprofessional practice and collaboration had I not had the opportunity for interprofessional education. So, um, yes, thank you, Ms. Susan. Also, she's a really good shot. I just have to tell you that as well. Um, for southern women, um, okay. So, teacher of the deaf, teacher of um, for blind, and I've had the um, the pleasure of working with some LISL certified SLPs, and that's that's key. I may be the SLP on the team treating the dysphagia because the child. I mean, we we all know that if you're born with a cleft, you're more likely to also have hearing loss. This is well documented. I am. Not the person to call when you have hearing loss. Didn't even know what to do with my own tiny human. However, if you need help swallowing, that's that's my jam. That's where I get pulled in, right? And it's okay within the world of roundly intervention to have two SLPs on your team if their focus is different parts of habilitation or rehabilitation.
0: Totally. Yeah, that's a a really Mm -hmm. great point. That's a really great point. I think that from a from like an admin perspective that probably oftentimes gets so confused and becomes a problem like you've already we've already got one SLP on the team why do we need another one but it's completely different skills that we're talking about here yeah and a, a lissels you know an AVT is a critical part of the audiology early intervention team i feel like this kind of team approach that you're experiencing i ha- i don't have as much experience with because mine is really like Most of the children born with like, you know, congenital hearing loss don't have additional, you know, comorbidities, you know, swallowing things. It does happen, but it's not as often. So usually I'm thinking of our team as like the audiologist, the AVT, the ENT, if we're going to be, you know, like having to do medical things from that perspective, then probably like a teacher of the deaf or someone in that kind of capacity, like a a better parent educator. um, And then like the parent themselves. But I'm just so interested to hear how you're, I mean, like just because the complexity of the medical needs that you see, it just involves so many different disciplines that you have to maintain good rapport with.
1: And like within the world of speech pathologists, there's, we all have our different sub areas of focus, right? Like our, our, what it is that we want to treat. Um, That's the same within the world of GI. That's the same within the world of neurology. I mean, so I I hear, (laughs) ENTs, I love one ENT in town. The man is um, a blessing to all those that cross his path. He's also the dad of a grown man with special needs. So he just he gets it very deep. And what I end up seeing is that a lot of people, yes, yeah, so we have all of those IPP team members that are there in the home once a week, or we're now Skyping or Zooming in once a week, right? We also have to focus on who is your feeding clinic team, who is your specialty clinic team, and who are your medical teams, right, that they may not see weekly, but they're on speed dial. So for, in my world, when we have, when I have a child that I need secondary consultation on. Uh, I send out to one of my former students who's now an adult and the head of the feeding clinic down at MUSC, and it makes my heart proud. Uh, I will pick up the phone and say, hey, I have a referral coming. I can engage in continuity of care because referral is sent. I have signatures. That phone call is critical because if I don't tell her why I sent the referral, what I need, they don't know. So tiny human and mama or daddy or grandparents or foster parents, because those are the core of your team, but we'll circle to that in a minute, Um, they show up at the clinic, the specialty clinic, whether it be a velopharyngeal insufficiency clinic, a um, craniofacial clinic, a GI clinic. I mean, there's a list of clinics that SLPs can refer to. And when you go to a clinic at a major children's hospital, at a major facility, you can anticipate seeing another layer of interprofessional practice happening. You'll start with, um, we'll go with um, feeding clinic. You'll see a nurse practitioner, a physician for the GI department. You may see an allergist. You may see an ENT um, because of aerodigestive dyspatia. You will definitely see an SLP and you'll definitely see a registered dietitian, but you may also see an OT. So in one, two to three hour span, that child is getting run through all of those people, all of those team members who then will send out for additional diagnostics, make changes, blah, 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 blah. They write up a comprehensive report. And this is another point of system breakdown. Where does this report go to?
0: Yeah. Let's get into that. Okay. So, and who does the patient belong to?
1: Oh, Oh, can we chuck our egos? The patient belongs to their parent. I, Faye, no. Okay, this. You made me pull my scrub shirts off, I... Dakota. I literally walked in the door from seeing a late patient because we had a breakthrough. The tiny human had a massive breakthrough on his AAC device, so we ran over because it was joy and we were combining three-word utterances. So I came in, yeah. But now, now, scrubs up. Okay. <laughs>
0: So, so I think it, it comes back It comes back to your point about EI, like some programs or that kind of being a thing that's been changing in the past where they're more willing to share information yes. and data. And I, I think, I think just as a jumping off point of this question, I feel like the EI program should be the hub, right, of that information, right? Whether they should have be. their own EMR or not, like the data goes there and then it should get to the rest of the team. But like, what does that actually look like in practice?
1: It goes nowhere. I have literally walked into a patient's house and gotten a script that says pediatric aphasia eval and treat." Aphasia is when you have word retrieval <laughs> difficulties have post-stroke. And I'm like, oh, this is for a six-week-old, I don't think that's going to work out so well. It goes, it goes nowhere. So in South Carolina, for example, we have a computer system called Bridges. And Bridges is the, um, it is not an EMR. We bill through it. You get reimbursed through it. You're supposed to put your notes in your eval. However, because they recognize that as an academic framework, it is not considered an EMR. And Hmm. physicians don't have access to
0: it. That's interesting. Mm
1: Mm-hmm hmm sorry, y'all missed the massive eye roll that I just gave to CODA. Yes, how interesting. I wonder if anybody has ever said to anybody, we should advocate for this. Mm-hmm. yes, so we don't. So right now, and this is rampant across the state, and yes, I understand early intervention falls in the wheelhouse of IDEA. However, I challenge you, we are saving patients five years ago that wouldn't have made it, My own son included in that. I had labor stopped 14 times five years ago or 10 years ago. That might not have been the case. He's a miracle. Testicle story and all. He's a miracle. But we have so much breakdown. So our EMR, our central point of contact, the core of our team is the parent that comes in all shapes and sizes. And when you have a family that is struggling on the Maslow's scale of hierarchical needs, when you have a family that's in a point of crisis, let's, let's take a peek. Texas just got sucker punched by a storm. Texas lost power. I have coworkers and colleagues in Texas. Do you think that their patients are focused on their home exercise program and their strategies right now? No. No, that's an extreme example. But I mean, we've all been battling COVID. I, my children are in a Mandarin immersion program. I speak English and bad English. And we have been trying to juggle full-time work and full-time school. And I don't know what they're saying half the time, literally. Trying to be the core of services with all of those variables is difficult. So identify the problem, work to resolve it. So one suggestion, one way that I have focused on personally building my families up when I when is letting them know, recognizing and acknowledging, I see this struggle. And I'm also an empath, so I end up carrying a lot of this home with me at the end of the day, which isn't healthy, but I mean, it is what it is. You love deep, right? So I share with my family's strategies to make it easier for continuity of care. I am really quick to write down all of my recommendations in a text message and give that text that to the parent, "Hey, I know you're seeing Neuro next week. Can you please request this, this, or this? Can you, um, can you uh, send this, this, and this? And they can take that text message and show it, to the doctor and say, this is the concern. And then uh, while they're in the session, I'll say, take notes in your phone and then you can just text it to the team. That's amazing. Um, Does it always happen? No, because you have a tiny human. How well does it work out when you're at the doctor's office for a checkup, right? (laughs) But it's a start. Also, it puts the onus on the clinicians, on the team, the OT, the PT, the SLP on the team the case manager on the team to reach out and pull the medical records it puts the onus on the clinicians to make sure that they're actually faxing the reports over that's it's such a simple statement but when you're own your own private practice and you're drowning having to sit and then fax out six plan of cares and wait for the confirmation especially when you have to download it from an EMR to upload it here, to then send it out in an electronic fax, like that can take an hour that you don't feel like you have.
0: Mm-hmm. Does that
1: help? That was a lot.
0: Yeah. 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 I, I think you're right that those, those are the things that take time, but when you like, when I'll speak to, and this isn't really as much related to EI, but just from, a continuity of care, multiple clinicians involved uh, kind of approach. Like uh, seeing a lot of peds, I work with a lot of educational audiologists who are juggling multiple schools, you know, with different students who have varying degrees of hearing loss. And when you do take the time to fax the report and then maybe send an email that says, hey, there's a report heading your way, which grand total wasn't that much time. But taking that where she doesn't have to then try to remember, okay, where do they go for their services? I've got to check in on that. You know, it's it's not – it's because when I do that, it's better for the, the child, right? They're ultimately going to be better set because whoever's providing care there is better equipped. But also it just helps my fellow clinician, right? It's just putting them in a better position to succeed and not be as stressed. And, yeah, I really think it, it's on us to, to step up and do the things that are <laughs> annoying I'll be honest. I didn't learn how to send a fax until like a few years ago. And I was like, this doesn't feel like something I should be doing in 2021. This feels like 1985. But it's I still what we in- do because <laughs> it's secure and all that stuff.
1: On 85, I was born in 83, man. Watch it.
0: <laughs> I'm just saying like, it would have yeah, made anyway. sense then, you know, but now it just, it still feels so. But anyways, that's, that's definitely a tangent for another time. But th- all that to say, These things take more work than I wish they did. But ultimately, it's always for the better of the patient when we do put in the the, time. The
1: family, the caregiver is at the core of what it is that we do. And because they're the ones that are taking care of the patient. And when we and it does to some extent, it means we got to step it up. Like we like that's really what it boils down to. I mean, there are weeks when I personally suck at that. Don't think I'm over here like, oh, I send out all my records all the time. No, like a week and a half will pass. And I'm like, oh my God, I forgot to send that to the physician and then rah. But um, yes, but one thing that I have found in the world of early intervention, I know the physicians, I know the rehab team, I know the allied health team, the medical health team that I anticipate working on, but you asked at the beginning about any outliers that we've had to work with. I've had some squirrels that you're just like, I did not see that one coming. I've had the pleasure of working with this one little guy for a year and a two years, two years. PFDs, you're in for the long haul. No matter what we did, I could not get him hungry. Couldn't, he was learning the skills, he's advancing the skills, but it was just the overall appetite. Also, he has a twin. And his twin was growing, and he was not. Interesting point. He has Down syndrome as primary. Um, Secondary diagnosis is ASD. Tertiary diagnosis is diabetes. We finally get into a consultation with a different endocrinologist. And after they do a bunch of assessments, they find out he is producing zero growth hormone zero right however you know how you see the pattern in your schedule like you'll have like like for a while there I was running for lack of a better phrase I was running a special on short gut syndrome from like weird etiologies but I just had a lot of little guys that had short gut syndrome on my caseload actually all of them had congenital short gut which is even weirder because normally that's like post um uh, necrotizing intracolitis, but they all had other issues, and it, yeah, congenital shortcuts, very rare, and leave it to me to find it, but um, but this little guy had, uh, his body produced zero growth hormone, and then come to find out he also had exocrine pancreatic um, insufficiency, so the digestive enzymes that his pancreas was putting out was insufficient to actually break down the food properly for his body to absorb it metabolically an outlier a subject sample of one however a powerful subject sample for me to remember that and I say subject sample like it's um very clinical I mean this little guy I love him with my whole heart like but in a clinical mind that's a subject sample of one and I now know when I have a child that is not growing at the rate that they should, and we have diminished hunger cues, I need to get the growth hormone checked.
0: Right? Sure. Yeah. It's that IPE foundation that makes this all work. work. And being teachable.
1: That is, um, SLPs, we are sometimes mean girls. Let's call it. I mean, like, really truthfully, you went to JMU. Like, this is...
0: No, I would never speak Uh ill of my uh SLP buddies from JMU. Yeah, well, I mean... If you're listening, I still love you. Okay.
1: An SLP. You can hear the SLP coming down the hallway because they're wearing heels and wearing pearls, right? And
0: That might be true.
1: But sometimes women are mean, and we like to think that we know it all. We like to think that, like, I don't need into professional education. I got this. Honey, you ain't got nothing. Be teachable. Be humble. Because it's in those moments when you're receptive enough for learning, that you're gonna figure out who else you need to bring onto this team to see your patient successful. And it could be an endocrinologist. I mean, I've had neurosurgeon pulled in after we found out that um, the child actually had spina bifida occluta and was not... This was was interesting. The child had velopharyngeal insufficiency and I got the referral for a VPI diagnosis. And it was from my girlfriend, Melissa. I was like, Melissa, I don't do arctic phonology. She goes, no, this kid needs you. And I was like, I, I don't remember how to make a K sound or how to teach how to make a K sound. So she crash-coursed me on how to cue phonology. And then I got this adorable little guy who wasn't big as a minute, and he was three and a half, and they were doing all sorts of um, uh, posterior pharyngeal wall surgery to it's a certain procedure where you like put injections into actually create a posterior pharyngeal wall and velum occlusion anyways long story short we're laying on the ground with his mom his mom him and me we're all laying on our backs going to teach the tongue to fall posteriorly to occlude to make the sound and I go all right and then I sat back up and I popped up he couldn't sit up he had to turtle to both sides because he couldn't he didn't have the core strength to just sit right up. This is atypical. This is not normal. When you learn about from occupational and physical therapy, there's cephalocaudal and proximal distal learning. I can't remember what the technical term is, but you, you learn core from head to toe and core from your extremities. The fact that his core was the complicated piece, this is atypical. So I keep talking to mom, I keep talking, the kid has no appetite. Great skills with a bolus, but zero appetite. That's why they sent the kid to me. And I'm like, something doesn't add up. Something doesn't add up. And mom mentioned in passing that when the baby was 20 weeks old, there was a shadow. You know when they do like the 20-week ultrasound? There was a shadow, but they had ruled out spina bifida. Okay, so I'm stewing on it, chewing on it a couple weeks past. And I, I made the joke just in passing because her young'un's about the same age as my youngin'. And um, I was like, yeah, you know, when you go to change their diapers and they get a little, you know, baby heart on and then they pee everywhere. And she goes, what are you talking about? And I was like, wait, what are you not talking about? That's what happens to little boys. The cold air hits them and then they get a little baby and then it just goes everywhere. That had never happened for this child. So now you're telling me, you had a shadow on your spine, you've got some central meet midline deficits, you're currently under, something's not right. So I pick up the phone, call the pediatrician, make the biggest pitch of my life to get this kid to neurology. I mean, like, here's the speech pathologist thinking something's wrong with the kid's spine. And luckily, <laughs> by grace, they have this amazing pediatrician who has an awesome special needs care nurse. And the nurse was like, Michelle, what do you? Why do you want this kid to see neuro? I'm like, trust me, I don't think they're properly innervated. I can't quantify it better than that. The kid had spina bifida occulta. Within two weeks, he was having spinal surgery, and then mom was like, "It's it's everywhere. It goes up, and he's three and a half, and he's peeing." And like, but on a bright note, this whole podcast is about privates. I'm so sorry, but like, <laughs> but he got hungry. He was hungry because. They realigned oh, yeah. and he finally had started having a consistent bowel movement and he was hungry. That was wicked cool. Dakota, subject sample of yeah. one, but we literally changed that kid's life because I listened to what she said, I processed it, and I made a pitch to make a bigger IPPT.
0: Mm-hmm. And guess what? Even if you even if they had found nothing, that that was. That was so important to look at, right? You to take that step. And I feel like a lot of a lot of clinicians, I know myself personally for a while, like you feel, uh, I mean, what's the word? Intimidated, I guess, especially by specialty like docs and MDs and stuff. And you don't want to look silly for making a referral for something. But I think when the pieces are there, you've got to do something. You've got to say something and make that referral. I think that's a I think that's a story I hope a lot of people will like keep and think about when they see those warning signs that point to something else. And thankfully, they had one IPE meeting, mm-hmm. or they were talking at a conference to this person, and they heard. it. You know what I mean? It's when all of those pieces come together that we can like really have like radical, life-changing, important yes. moments. So I yes. appreciate you sharing. We That's had um,
1: there's a quote from Grey's Anatomy: "When you hear hoofbeats, beats, assume horses. If you need me as your clinician." Those huffbeats are a zebra or a unicorn or a narwhal. So like that's just the running joke. Narwhal. <laughs> yeah. But yes. Yeah.
0: Some of the things that we mentioned about we've we've already talked about several of like the the strengths of the team, but I'm wondering like What's been the best case scenario that you've had in terms of being on a team with other clinicians? Like, what were the the factors that really were like a total differentiator to make it ultra successful?
1: Joy. Joy.
0: Hmm, that's not what I was expecting. I was expecting like, you know, we had good report writing. Oh, we got all that.
1: But like, I mean, Joy, if you have been in this profession for so long, And you have lost your love of it, your, for lack of a better phrase, your faith in humanity here. I mean, we all get burnout. We all need to practice better self-care. I mean, I gave up negative self-talk for Lent, and I'm failing at that miserably 24 hours in. But, like, girl's going to try. Oh, yeah. But if we don't love what we do then you're, you're not going to be able to advocate and fight for your patients. Because at the end of the day, that's really what we're doing. I mean, I may be the best feeding therapist that I can be Monday through Friday, but if, if I'm not willing to think critically or assess out of genuine passion, genuine love and joy for this, for the kid, for the family, then the whole team fails. And I can tell... When I'm engaging in IPP with a team, I can tell when, um, because I, I we use I've been using FaceTime like forever. It feels like, but um, if the family would go to a clinic and I would say, okay, well, let me know, send me a text, I'll step out from what I'm doing and we can FaceTime or we can Zoom and um, I can speak with the physician and tell them what we're seeing and what's going on. Just let me know what time the appointment is, so I can be like HIPAA compliant and safe and secure and holding words. But I can tell when the other person's losing interest. I can tell when they have closed off, when that crucial conversation is shot. And one of the best things that my very first rehab manager, we called him boss man. Boss man was like this great big PT shaved head, but he was like a giant teddy bear. Um, boss man had us read crucial conversations as a team. And I was like, why do I have to, I was a CF. I was like, why the bloody you-know-what do I have to read a book? I just graduated. I know everything. I was an idiot, but like whatever. Um, We read the book, and it was all about how to recognize body language. If somebody's running hot, you need to be a little bit cooler to try to get them to a midline and vice versa. That was fundamental to me as a clinician because I've taken that and grown it, nurtured that skill over the years, And now, when I'm engaging in interprofessional collaboration and I see the other people have checked out, they're done, I start wondering what's their baggage? What's their story? What's their hurt? I mean, this is my empath self coming in, but why are they disassociated to this particular patient in case? Where are they on Maslow's scale? And what I have found is that sometimes if you just pull them aside afterwards, you know, patient leaves or come up and you say hey I got are you okay what's going on have that conversation figure out what's inhibiting their joy then it puts the team back on track now that's michelle when she's in a good mood now michelle dawson when she's in a bad mood sometimes i call it i'm like what were you thinking of? but like i try to put less teeth in my tiger and like behave myself but you know my family was Navy Department of Defense. My husband was a um, West Pointer. Like, I can throw four-letter words around like they're an article. <laughs> so, like, huzzah! <laughs> uh, does that help? Yeah. We could,
0: that definitely helps. That definitely clarifies. They
1: report writing, continuity of care, phone calls, all of that. But yeah, it's the tone with which you communicate.
0: Yeah, I, w- I really wasn't expecting that answer, and I think you really broke it down really eloquently. That was great we're coming up on the end of our time so i have one other question to bring it home for our audiology focused listeners have you had any team experiences with an audiologist in this ei world in my time at a children's hospital they had like a comprehensive inpatient rehab unit where it was a lit like that was a pretty diverse interdisciplinary team but again it wasn't so much like from the ei basis and so I I mean, I feel like we could have had a whole conversation just on, like, interprofessional teams, right? Because that can look like a lot of different things. You can have adults who need an interprofessional team. Mm
1: -hmm. My brother-in-law, he's special needs. My brother-in-law has an IPP team for his special needs at 40. He's almost 44 for the baby that they said take him home and make him comfortable. He's turning
0: 44 next Mm. month. So, yay. Yeah, that's awesome. (laughs) So in your EI specifically experience, maybe a PFD, maybe, you know, whatever that looks like, have you had to work with audiologists before? And if you have, what do you wish they would have known? Or like, what would you tell current AUD students or audiologists to help make them, you know, more, you know, better parts of that team?
1: Um, SLPs don't have a clue what you're saying. <laughs> so like, me, like, y'all start throwing around quotes on terms and I'm like, I think I saw an audiogram like 20 years ago and I don't know what they're saying, but like legit SLPs don't know. So um, probably not what you're expecting, Dakota, unless you're a little AVT SLP that like knows those things. Here's what I remember, a square on a line means one thing, and then there's a circle. And if it's a particular pattern, it means sensory neural. If it's another pattern, it means conductive. One, you're more likely to get back the other one. We could have a whole lot of additional surgeries that is what slp's remember in a nutshell so code switch please and do it in a yeah. way that doesn't make me feel like i don't know what you're talking about because if mm-hmm. you fl- cuz remember the whole high heels and pearls statement if you deliver the message with fluff you're going to win us over. I, I What is it? You catch more flies with honey? That is a lie. You catch more flies with beer because I grew up in the country and I know that for a fact. You didn't know this is going to be so much fun. Your people are going to be like, who, where did, what rock did you find this woman under?
0: This has been amazing. <laughs> but
1: like, okay, but we, honest to God, we don't have a freaking clue what you're talking about. Okay, so then get past that. Um, my next question is... Um, Y'all need to be aware that when we're going out into homes, half the time we don't know where the hearing aid is. It's gone. A dog has it. Um, And that is just because we see what it actually looks like in the real world. That's that's a huge downside. Um, Two, we don't understand the process of increasing amplification in the hearing aids. And we don't, so um, case in point, I had a little guy a couple years ago who survived seven strokes. Um, He had complications um, and went coded in the birth canal. Came out, they put him on ECMO, um, which is where they take the blood out of your body. They go through the carotid artery in the neck and pull the blood around the room from me structural perspective for an oropharyngeal dysphagia, if you have a newborn baby that you've got like a gauge 15 needle sticking out the carotid artery, we are completely creating scar tissue and a whole host of things, right? One of the known side effects of ECMO, let alone seven CVAs, hemorrhagic in nature, is um, uh, hearing loss. And sure enough, he had hearing loss on the side of his neck where they did the ECMO to save his life. So mom would explain to me, and I got called in for the PFD part. We were trying, we were on the wait list for a little person. Um, But, I mean, I worked with the family off and on for four years. We plateaued then have regression. And that's the nature of PFD. That's the nature of oropharyngeal dysphagia. Mom would explain to me that, like, the amplification was going up. They were increasing it by this, by this, by this, and I didn't understand. I assume once you turn on the hearing aid, you turn it on and they can, like, hear the sounds. But she was explaining in detail, and she did a really good job. She was a great historian and advocate. But I didn't understand when she first presented, I mean, at first, that... The target was this, but that his sensory processing disorder inhibited them from going from here to here with the amplification and they were having to increase it. Meanwhile, he was also doing the same with his glasses because they he needed this prescription strength, but they couldn't do that because it was too much for his brain because he was neurologically rewiring. So SLPs don't know these things and human nature... People are afraid to ask, let another think that they don't know, right? Lest somebody think poorly of them. So I'm trying to think what else we, um, but reach out to us, have us come in and participate. I had a horrible experience with Bear where his first audiologist perforated his eardrum trying to do a tympanogram. And blood came out of his ear and they proceeded to tell me that, um, my child had some behavioral issues, um, that conversation that brought out not pleasant, Michelle, <laughs> in a whole lot of ways, which is how I found your lovely Beth. So I mean, big picture, like we met your and I got to see what best practice looks like trying to do an assessment on a kid, and actually his very first hearing test that he passed was at your clinic. I don't know if you knew that. That was goosebump worthy, like oh, after repeated failure, um, but. Yeah. Did that, did that help what SLPs truly don't know?
0: <laughs> yeah, definitely. I love how specific that was. That was really good feedback. I think I, I always, when I ask questions like that, I always am hoping for something that's a little bit more like practical things you can do and that hit the nail right on the head. So I re- I really appreciate that. And I think that code switching is something we struggle with. I think a lot of clinicians like very of various backgrounds struggle with that so much because we know a lot of things and we, w- I think we're all naturally, uh, in the last couple of episodes actually I've talked with both like an audiologist who works mostly with parents and then an audiologist who does a lot of RO rehabilitation. And we all just want to like educate people. We want to train our patients our patients families to like be audiologists but that's not what they're there to do but we have this like natural inclination to try to teach them everything we know and most of the time that's not necessary so I think the same is true for other clinicians you guys have expertise you don't need you don't need to know all of the things that I know but you do need to understand some things and so I need to explain them in a way that I know makes more sense to someone who yes. doesn't have this many years of doing it so yeah I think that's great yes. advice
1: yes and it, the second we gloss over and we just smile and nod it makes. Have you ever seen the penguins in Madagascar? And they're yeah. like, "Smile away, smile And They're like, "If we do that, that's a dead ringer for like, oh, I don't know what's going on." Yeah. <laughs> yes,
0: that's good. Mm-hmm. So, oh, thank you so much. This has been. We're coming up right here on the end of our time, and I love that. That's how we ended it was with some practical, hands on advice for our listeners. And I feel like we're kind of just scratching the surface. So hopefully, we'll be able to continue. Maybe we could add in another professional from like a PT or OT perspective, and just kind of do like a
1: Dylan Hartley, yes, I know there's an amazing OT, Dylan Hartley, who's phenomenal. He would be, and he talks about polyvagal theory and trauma and how to engage with families that have had trauma,
0: hmm. and
1: that would be, sorry, Squirrel Excitement, yeah. I would recommend him.
0: Yeah, that would be really mm-hmm. cool. But yeah, Michelle, thank you for coming on. It's just been so awesome to talk with you. You're such a joy. You're hilarious. Your your stories are both like heartwarming and gut-busting. <laughs>
1: but we made that darling we you you need to hear it all yeah because otherwise you won't be able to truly grasp the gravity of the situation
0: yeah yep before we go is i know you've got your book that's kind of like on its way to the presses, I guess it's kind of been yes. it's 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 almost ready to go. Where else can people find you? Uh, tell us about first bite. Tell us about your book.
1: First bite, fed fun, functional first bite speech therapy podcast. It was the first podcast in the world that counted for ASH's CEUs, and we are 136 episodes deep. Um, it is all things interprofessional education and interprofessional practice. So once every four episodes, my partner in crime Erin Forward, um, her and I co-host, and then the other. The next three are me interviewing basically whatever tickles my fancies or has royally made me mad and I want to fix something that's that's who we interview to make the world a better place and uh, you can find that on all the major places like stitcher spotify apple podcast the book is called chasing the swallow the truth science and hope for pediatric feeding disorders and the entire book two years deep. It's been a labor of love. Um, it should be out by my birthday on March 10th. Um, wow. The,
0: uh,
1: yeah, that's that's a fantastic way to start turning 38. Um, but the whole book takes a peek at interprofessional practice and every discipline that a child could encounter or engage with along their pediatric feeding disorder journey. And it's, the truth is, a vignette, a moment, a case, the sciences, the history of that profession, why, what their education, their training, what tests they run, what diagnoses they can give, and the hope is how engaging with that professional helped or aided that case study.
0: Hmm.
1: And so every chapter is a case study according to engaging with that professional, and it's and the drawings are really pretty. <laughs> so
0: like. It sounds amazing. But, I cannot wait to read that. I'm so excited. I didn't know it was coming so soon. I know that it was kind of just being finished up. So that's that's really soon. That's yeah, amazing.
1: I know. I have an anxiety attack pending. We're fine. Okay. So but you can find us at First Bite and at Chasing the Swallow on Instagram and First Bite on um, Facebook. And then I think my Instagram handle is at Michelle Dawson SLP. But, like, I don't know. A friend does the things and... I thumbs up.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's awesome. Thank you so much, Michelle. This has been such an awesome conversation. I can't wait to talk to you again soon. Um, But again, thank you so much for coming out.
1: Hey, thanks for coming out and mentoring my students last Friday. They loved it.
0: (laughs) It's my pleasure. (laughs) And that's all for today. Thank you so much for listening, subscribing, and rating. This podcast is part of an audio course offered for continuing education through Speech Therapy PD. Check out the website if you'd like to learn more about the CEU opportunities available for this episode, as well as archived episodes. Just head to speechtherapypd.com slash ear. That's speechtherapypd.com slash E-A-R.